time of year, I, I like to try and keep uh, our little birds out in our backyard well taken care of, so I'm going out there time and time again, uh, restocking that bird feeder, getting the seed down in there just where it needs to be. They're going through it pretty fast this time of year. Uh, sometimes, though, from time to time, I will take some bread from inside our house, from the kitchen that's gone a little stale, some bread or crackers or whatever the he uh, case may be, and just throw it out there. And they seem to appreciate it. I haven't gotten any thank you notes, but uh, they... They do seem to appreciate it. And I've wondered over the course of this, as I'm, especially as I'm thinking to myself, why am I throwing out food that I just paid for to birds? But I think to myself, why, why do things like this get stale? What causes bread to get stale? And so I actually, because I was bored one day, I looked it up. No, I really, I, I looked it up. And, and, and it, it said something, the links that I looked at said something along the lines, well, it has to do uh, bread, crackers, whatever the case may be, get stale because of the ingredients that may have something to do with it, the ingredients that were used in the mixing of it, the preparation of it. It may have to do with the uh, process by which it was baked or um, the place in which it was stored or the means by which it was shipped. It may have to do with, oh, what else was it? Um, the crystallization of molecules and blah, 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 blah. All this stuff, boring stuff about why things get stale. Point is things do. Things get stale. For many of us, God gets stale. Well, that's not a right way to put it. It's our perception of God gets stale. Because, see, God is the beginningless, endless, boundless sorts of all love and truth and wisdom and mercy. So if we're getting bored with him, that's more an indictment on us than him. But nonetheless, we do. We do get bored with God. Our relationship with Him can take on a staleness where expectations are flat. Aspirations, longings, flat. It's stale. It's stale. What do we do then? Do we give up? Ought not to. What, what should we do then? The best thing to do is to go to the living God again and his living word again that our eyes might be able to see again, that our ears might be able to hear again, that our hearts might be stirred again. And he is faithful to meet us in those places when we're honest. Um, if you have your Bible with you, I'd, I'd ask you to turn now with me to Philippians 1. Philippians 1. Uh, we're moving through this little series that we have just gotten underway here in the study of the book of Philippians, which was really a letter. If you're trying to find it in your New Testament, that's your first clue, New Testament. It's after the Gospels and after Acts and after Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians. Philippians. Uh, Philippians. And um, we are in chapter 1. Last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 2, so we were just getting going. And we're going to read verses 1 and 2 again and carry it on through to verse 8. Okay, so Philippians 1, starting in verse 1 and going on to verse 8. Hear now God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. I'm taking these words to start our prayer from Psalm 119, just beginning in verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. That's why we have ears, to hear from you, ultimately. It's uh, part of what it means to be made in your image and according to your likeness to be in relationship with you. That's your purpose for us. And in relationship with you, we, we find purpose, we find meaning, we find significance, we find life flourishing, deepening. We confess at the same time um, we are looking everywhere at times except to you for that sort of life. And many of us bear the scars of that in no few ways. Uh, No few of us bear burdens this morning for varying Reasons and for no few people, maybe even including ourselves, uh, we we ask that you would help us to entrust you with all that would heavy our hearts, with all that would cloud our sight. We ask that you would clear away our our faulty assumptions as we're coming here to your word. Clear it away. We we, we of course we come with something, some presuppositions and assumptions and ideas as to what you should say. Help us hear what you do say. In your name we pray. Amen. Shadowlands. Shadowlands is a 1993 film starring Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger uh, telling the story of the relationship between C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman, their relationship, their romance, her struggle with cancer, her death from cancer, and then the challenge, the great grief from that brought to C.S. Lewis. Um, It was very well received by the critics, uh, was uh, nominated for no few awards in varying categories, won some of those categories and uh, nominations as well. It's interesting, though, that friends of C.S. Lewis, men who and women who knew the man, had something interesting to say about the film. 
And it goes something like this. I enjoyed the movie. I just don't recognize the man it portrayed. I enjoyed the movie. I just don't recognize the man it portrayed. And, and I was thinking about that in connection with contemporary views of the Christian faith around us. Some perceive Christianity to be just weird. Uh, it's out there. I don't get it. Uh, some say, um, well, it's just irrelevant. It doesn't have any bearing. It, does, I don't, it doesn't connect with, with life as it really is. Some will say, well, it's, it's, it's just untrue. It's just untrue. It's just patently false. The idea that life can be found, purpose, meaning can be found in this one person, this Jesus, this guy that lived so long ago, come on. But some go further. Maybe some of you are familiar with this. Maybe some of you feel this way. Not just that it's crazy, not just that it's irrelevant, not just that it's untrue, but some will go further and say it's evil. It's not just wrong, it's evil to say that there's one way. The exclusivity of a truth claim is not just wrong, but it's divisive, it's, it's harmful. To, to people. Now, you can say any and all those things if you wish. And if you want to talk about it later, I'd be glad to. But I got to tell you this say whatever you like about the Christian faith along those lines, and I promise you, the Apostle Paul will not recognize that faith. That's not the one he wrote about, that's not the one he lived for and ultimately gave his life for. Paul wrote of the gospel. We've been talking about this over the last few weeks, what that means. The good news, a proclamation, something along the lines of, you know, at the end of World War II, when you see those wonderful photographs of there in the streets of New York City and the people going crazy because the war is, well, V-E Day. It's that part of the war. V Surrender, victory, and they're partying in the streets. It's that kind of, of good news, gospel. Paul writes in, in Romans 1, he describes it this way. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That word power means, it can be translated miracle or ability. The word in the Greek is dunamis, which is the word from which we get our word dynamite. The gospel is the dunamis of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Or if you've been a part of the Christianity Explored course. Uh, if you haven't been, I hope you will, will be. One of the things that was said last week in the course of the, the teaching component of that hour was, look, if after encountering this message, the message of the gospel, that we can be once and for all forgiven of any and everything that we've ever done and made new, and this whole world is going to be made new, if after hearing that news, you then don't come away from that saying, that's the best news I've ever heard, you haven't heard it. You haven't really, it's just gone into your, the holes in the side of your head. But you haven't heard it. We're talking about the dunamis of God, What Paul is saying in Romans 1, what he's implying when, we're, when you look at what we just read a few minutes ago here in Philippians 1, is that God works through the gospel in astonishing ways. 
God works through the gospel in astonishing ways, and that is cause, as you see the effects it has on Paul, that is cause for thanks and a longing for more. Thanks for what you've done and a longing for more. Such is the work that God does, the astonishing ways that God works through the gospel. Let me give you a quick survey of how this passage flows, okay? And then we'll, uh, that's kind of a, okay, if we're just doing a study, that would be it, but this is not a study, this is something else. Um, a sermon is basically a Bible study that gets carried away. So we're going to get carried away. We're going to look at some themes, okay? But let me give the, 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 uh, the, 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 the walking you through part, part here. Verses 3 through 5, there in Philippians 1, is basically Paul's overflow of thanksgiving and joy when he thinks of these, this group of people in this that he calls the church of Philippi. Verse 6 is the reason, the cause, the conviction that's driving that joy and thanksgiving. Verses 7 through 8 is the evidence. It's hinted at earlier, but it's, verse 7 and 8 are really about the evidence that's forming that conviction that Paul has about them. That's then forcing in this flow of thanksgiving and joy. Or if I can put it this way, thematically, what we see here is the fruits, the effects of a, the relationship, a relationship with the living God. The fruits, the effects of the gospel, the dunamis of God. There are three, as you see here in this text. First, a partnership in the gospel. Second, an assurance from the gospel. And third, a transformation by the gospel. Partnership, assurance, transformation. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, a partnership in the gospel. This is one of the effects. This is one of the um, aftershocks, I guess you could say, of the dunamis of God at work. Verses 3 through 5. Let's look at it again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, again, Paul is overflowing here with joy and thanksgiving. Why? This partnership. In the Greek, and I don't mean to overload you with Greek. This is the last word I think I'm going to mention you know, from Greek. Okay, Konania. They're Konania in the gospel. Now, that can be translated different ways. It's such a rich term... Translators have to go different ways with it depending on the context. Here, it's not a bad translation to say partnership, but it can also mean fellowship. Right? And some of you may be familiar with that, that concept and heard of that. What does that mean? What does it mean to speak of the konania of the gospel? Well, first, let's dispel what it doesn't mean. Let's just knock that out of the park right away, okay? It's not warm, friendly conversation over hot coffee and tasty pastries. That is not fellowship. It's fine, I'm good with hot coffee and tasty pastries. Not knocking it. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something far richer. The biblical definition of kononia, of fellowship, of partnership, has to do fundamentally with sharing. A twofold sharing. First, a sharing together. Excuse me. Yeah, sharing together. Sharing together of a common relationship in God as a family. Sharing together in common relationship and then also sharing together in common partnership. Yoked together in this one endeavor. 
sharing together. As a consequence of that, flowing out of all that we share together in relationship and partnership with one another, kononia, we share with one another of ourselves, opening up, listening, engaging, embracing, and our things. We share of ourselves and we share of what we have because of the, put it this way, because of all that we share together, we share with. Because of the common relationship, because of the common partnership, we will then share of ourselves and of our things. That is kononia. That is what Paul is talking about here, is that he can see evidenced in this congregation, this group of people there in Philippi, in this church that he planted some 12 years ago, and it is making his heart sing. They're in jail in Rome as he's thinking to himself, literally, my God, they're still at it. It's growing, it's taken root, and it's spreading. Now, that's what it means. Think with me now who's involved with this. The, the two parties in this partnership, this kononia. You've got two. You've got the guy writing the letter and the people receiving the letter, right? You've got Paul. Paul, this Jewish guy from Palestine, locked away in a Roman jail cell. Party one. Party two. The Philippians in Macedonia, who are Gentiles, by the way, who are living in a Roman colony which was a big to-do at the time. Please understand, when you try and match these, eHarmony would not have done this, okay? This is not going to work according to all the matrix, matrices, I guess, or the algorithms by which you would try and match things. This is not a natural fit. This guy and these people. So what does it tell you? It's a supernatural fit. That's the only explanation as to what's going on here. They are bound together by nothing less and nothing more, nothing else than the gospel. The good news, the dunamis of God is at work here. Which, And this, this sort of partnership, this sort of kononia far exceeds anything else that we could ever find or, or look for any, anywhere else in the globe. Okay, the Olympics, right? Think about all the Olympics, especially the hoopla that you know, builds up to it and you're watching the opening ceremonies and... You know, it's just like, you know, I just want to share a Coke with you, right? I mean, we're just one big, happy, global family. And, and, and everything is wonderful, and peace has come. And let's unlock our doors, and, and wow. I mean, all that's promised there, right? This, this, the, the, the testimony of the wonders of the human spirit manifested in the pure exaltation of athletic competition. Right? That's what's promised. Bob Costas told you. Then he got pink eye. But anyway, Bob Costas told you. And then, okay, that's what the Olympics promises. And then what does it deliver? What, have you read the news just in the last two weeks? Have you been under a rock? I mean, first you've got this scandal of corruption in the host country, all this insane overbilling and overcharging going on there, and the lining of pockets. Then you have um, a scandal in the women's uh, ice skating competition this past week where it seems that there was some monkeying around going on there with the judges and the scoring and the person that won shouldn't have and the person that lost shouldn't have and ugh, all that stuff. 
Then you've got, oh, I love this, before the games even got started. I think they actually said this in the opening ceremony. I was kind of like, well, that doesn't fit with everything you just said. But it was something along the lines of, you know, depending on what country you're from and I'm from, in the living quarters where the athletes live, they're not going to let us nearby. You know why? Because we're going to fight. Because what's going on in our home countries? They don't get along, and so they keep the athletes literally in the planning. They'll put the athletes from this nation and this nation far away so that there won't be any scuffles because they know what will happen. Oh, yeah, that's a testimony to the wonders of the human spirit. And then, you have, on top of that, we've got athletes who leave the games in the middle of the games without competing. You know why? Because of civil unrest in Ukraine. And they go home because they know this is crazy for me to be playing a game while people are dying in the streets. You see, we need more. We need more than our best intentions and our puny hearts can muster up when it comes to Konania. We need so much more. We need what actually, folks, binds so many of us here in this room together right now. The Konania of the gospel. The power, the dunamis of God at work. That's what we need. I mean, in terms of, just let me give you an example. Uh, um, I don't want to tell you. I don't mean to do this. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to be dictatorial or something. I'm suggesting. In our conversation, just as a very practical thing, in the lunch, let's say you hang around. I hope you do. Um, Okay, let's talk about the weather. That's fine. Let's talk about our favorite sports teams. That's fine. Or our hobbies. Or what we have in common in terms of the neighborhoods we live in, or the jobs that we work, or the places that we've lived, or the stages of our lives, or what the craziness and nuttiness of our children are doing. That's all great. But that is not what binds us together. The work of Jesus and the fruit of that is what binds us together. Can we talk about that a little bit too? That we might be encouraged and spurred on? I need it. I think a few of you too do as well. God works through the gospel, you see, to do astonishing things, and part of that is to create partnership even between crazy knuckleheads like us. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see here in this text is an assurance from the gospel as well. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, What's going on here is that as much as their partnership in the gospel, the Konania, was encouraging Paul and, and causing his heart to sing, that really was but evidence of something else that was really jazzing him, that was really encouraging him, that was really bolstering his hope and joy in the Lord. The partnership was the partnership in the gospel was evidence of the gospel at work, evidence of God at work in his in their lives, and that thrilled his soul. 
evidence is at work. There, at least you could break it up into two basic categories. One, their financial support. And it's, it's, it's alluded to throughout Philippians several times. How they, they knew of his material, physical needs. And they were organizing towards that and, and giving towards that. And Paul was greatly encouraged by that as it was delivered and as it arrived. But even then, that, though that was appreciated, even that was not what really excited him in terms of the way they were supporting him, and that was relational support. Their personal concern that they were relaying to him through other people. Their prayers for his well-being and his faithfulness, even in that Roman cell. The fact that they would be willing to associate themselves with this man as members of a Roman colony, that they would be willing to associate themselves with a man in a Roman jail cell, waiting trial by Caesar greatly encouraged his heart. And again, the only way you can explain that is the work of the gospel in their hearts. That's evidence of something. Let's talk of the source of all of that. The, where is that coming from? Well, put it this way. As Paul says here in, in verse 6, God has start, had started something. That's what Paul can see. God has started something in you. Salvation is His work of salvation is underway. Justification, that act by which he secures our legal standing, secured before him through Christ. He can see that. He knows that. Adoption, that relational dynamic whereby he, he brings us into the family, that act of his grace. And Paul is recognizing God has, has done these things. He has begun these things. And there's more coming. What he has started, he will complete his work of sanctification, his work of making you progressively, slowly, but surely more like Jesus. That's underway, and he's so encouraged. He also had confidence, no, yet there was something else to come. Glorification. The day when they would not just be progressively made like Jesus, but completely like Jesus. And Paul, can he's sensing that in them. He sees evidence of God's work, he knows that what God that starts, he finishes. Unlike many of us with our hobbies and our projects that lie in, you know, shameful places in our homes, you know, like under the bed or in the boxes or in the closets or maybe in the dump. You know, that, that quilt you started or that painting you started or that great novel you started or I don't know what it was. The renovation you started. God's not like that. What he starts, he finishes. He is not like uh, so many builders. And you read news about things like this uh, just in our own community. And some of you, sadly, I'm sure could speak to having experienced something like this. You know, where builders walk off the job. Right? Stephen, you could probably tell a story about that. But builders walk off the job and leave the poor customer there with a mess on their hands. Or they complete the job and it's so bad what they've completed, the customer's got still a mess on their hands. And God... This builder's not like that. He, what he starts, he finishes and finishes well. And that is encouraging to Paul because he can see with these people he has started something and he's giving them assurance he will finish it. He will finish it. Now you may be wondering, well, tell me more. I don't quite get how this progressive sanctification works. I get how... Let me throw some fancy schmancy terms at you. They're not Greek, they're English, but they sound like Greek. Monergistic, okay? Much of what God does in our lives is monergistic, meaning it's all Him. Cre you know, creation would be one, but that's not the one I had in mind. Justification. 
adoption, glorification. You will have no part in those. You are but recipients of those works upon his works upon us. We, we are the beneficiaries of that. Sanctification is a little different. It's not monergistic, it's synergistic, meaning that we have a part to play there in our becoming more like Jesus. We know that for a whole variety of reasons. One would be the fact that Paul is praying for these people. Why has he got to pray for these people? If there's not some need for them to stay the course and act and be faithful, why does he have to give us the commands that he does? If there's not a role that we play in, the, in our growth, becoming more and more like, like Jesus. The, the, the point being is this. We work. We're at work here. But at the end of the day, as we look back and see what happened, what we've come to understand, if we're seeing it rightly, is that that was God at work in and through us while we were working. He's going to talk, Paul's going to talk more about that in, in the second chapter of Philippians, but he, he, he touches on it even here. Francis Schaeffer refers to it this way, as an active passivity, where we are constantly, even as we are busy and engaged in works of obedience, acts of obedience, at the same time we are completely leaning to and relying upon the Lord to help us do it. We do it, he does it. Back to the main point. My friends, I, I'm bringing this up. I'm stress, stressing this point because I want you to be encouraged. If there's any glimmer, if there's a pulse of Christ-likeness at all in you, I'm not talking like you've won awards for, you know, best Christian of the year. I'm talking like, you know, in a class of 100 that was vying for that award, you're like 101, okay? If there's but a pulse there, if there's an but an inclination, a desire even there, no matter how faint or flawed, no matter how sluggish or slow or slight, if there's anything there, that's evidence of his work in you. Be encouraged. As Paul says here, as, as he says he's sure of this, on the, on the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, I am sure, I am certain, 100% convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, no matter how faltering or flawed you may feel yourself to be. God works through the gospel to bring forth these evidences that we might then have assurance, all the more reason for assurance. And that is all the more reason for thanksgiving, and that is all the more to stir within us a longing for more of this as we've tasted of it. Last thing, um, not just the partnership in the gospel being an evidence of the dunamis, Assurance from the gospel, evidence and sign and fruit of the dunamis, but transformation, a transformation. I really don't have a one part here. It's more the tone. It's the tone, it's the flavor, it's the feel of everything Paul's saying here in verses 3 through 8. So I'm going to go back and reread it. Hang in there. It wasn't that long. Um, verses 3 through 8, and, and, and listen, what kind of man is writing this? Where is his heart? 
Where's his heart? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now you see how this smacks the caricature of Paul right upside the head. The caricature that has been painted through the years of Paul as this dour, sour, people-bashing, pleasure-hating guy who ruined this good thing that Jesus of Nazareth started. That's the way he is portrayed in many circles today. A thousand times no. Paul's Life was upended by Jesus of Nazareth. His heart was changed, revolutionized, transformed by an encounter with the living Jesus of Nazareth, the King Jesus. And he simply carried forward what he had learned. Think with me the, the, the marks, the, the, thinking about this transformation we see Marks of the past. What do we know of Paul in his past? When he was Saul. Saul, some of you may not know this. Saul was a Pharisee. His name was Saul in those days before he met Jesus. He was a Pharisee. What do we know about the, the Pharisees in general? As you read through the Gospels, as you read through the book of Acts, what do we glean? And from extra-biblical writings, what do we learn about the Pharisees? The Pharisees, by the way, were this party within first century Judaism who were really... Uh, devoted and given towards the purity of the faith and obedience to the law. Boom, boom, boom. Cut and dry. Everything was cut and dry. What do we know about them? They were joyless. Joyless when it came to their relationship with God. Everything was mechanical. Everything was ritual. Their relationship with God was basically contractual. We will do this. God, you now owe us this. Joyless. Joyless with God. Joyless within themselves. No certainty. No assurance. Um, insecurity. Always striving. Struggling. Pushing. Wanting to, know, to do more so that they could, I don't know, have better, more assurance, but it was, it's an unquenchable thirst because of what they were drinking from. Joyless with God. Joyless with self. Joyless with others. Quick to snap, quick to strike out, so impatient, so judgmental, so unmerciful. You see, there's no joy in their lives no, when it came to their relationship with God, themselves, or with others. And that was Saul. When we meet him in Acts chapter 8, and he stands there. Well, Acts 7, actually, we meet him holding the cloaks while Stephen was executed. That's another story. But Acts 8, where we read of him as a persecutor of the church, zealous for what he was doing. And then he meets Jesus, and everything changes. So I'm shifting now from the past to the present. He's given a new name. 
Saul of Tarsus is now Paul. Paul the Apostle, given a new name because he has a new identity in Christ. And you can see it here in just these verses that we read for a few moments ago. Saul the Pharisee could never have written anything like this. No way. No way. The breadth of the man's love. At the memory of these people, as he's thinking back to the moments that he shared with these people, the very mention of their names, and every member, which is the stress here, all of you, it's as though he's from that jail cell opening his arms up wide to embrace them and also to bring them close because some of them were drifting away from each other. All of you. I love you. All of you. The breadth of the man's love, the depth of his love, the intensity of his love. I mean, he speaks of holding them in his heart, verse 7, verse 8, a yearning for them with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Whoa. You see, by Jesus' work in his life, because of that, as a fruit of that, as a consequence of that, as an effect of that, an aftershock of that, of the dunamis of the gospel, Paul has been freed from self-justification, self self-righteousness, selfishness, He's been freed. Or as F.F. Uh, F. Bruce in his uh, landmark study on the Apostle Paul, the subtitle, The Apostle of the Heart Set Free. That's who wrote this. Did you notice there's no venting here, by the way? He's in a jail cell, people. It's been a long time that he's been in this, this court system, this judicial system. It's been years since he first made his appeal to Caesar. It's been years since the end of the third missionary journey. You think maybe he had hope for a fourth, a fifth, a sixth? And after one, two, three, I get to spend years in this mess. There's no venting. There's no self-pity. Now you might say, well, that's because he's delusional. Religion is messed with his head. No! How can you read his letters and say anything like that? The man's mind is so razor sharp. And yet his heart is so soft. That's the dunamis of the gospel at work here. It's transformational power. You get a sense of that just with the opening words. I thank my God. Clearly pointing here to a relationship with the living God. I mean, Paul was died far too early to appreciate Robert Lowry's wonderful words at him. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what Paul is writing, singing of here. The transformational power of the gospel. It's another movie It's out right now. Um, I haven't seen it. Maybe some of you have. The Monuments Men. Uh, it's an interesting story. That this, the uh, tagline is the greatest art heist in history. It's loosely based on a true story 
World War II, the Allied forces towards the end of the war hire architects, museum curators, and sculptors to, they mobilize these guys, get them in the right places at the right time to do the intelligence work to steal back some of Western civilization's greatest art treasures that the Nazis had stolen to preserve them, to keep them from being destroyed, which was a work that was being carried out by Hitler and his, his minions. Well, it has, the story has a lot of potential. I find it to be interesting. I don't know about you, but sadly the reviews are rather mixed, so I don't know if it's a film worth seeing, but it's certainly a story worth telling. Um, thousands, literally thousands, of priceless, beautiful, culturally vital artifacts were spared. Saved, recovered, reclaimed. Well, you know, it's not just artifacts that at times need to be recovered and reclaimed. Sometimes it's ideas. Sometimes it's stories. Sometimes it's meta-narratives, accounts, ways of understanding how reality is, what it is, who God is, how he has come in the, in, in, in the flesh, lived and died in our place to set us free. This is the dunamis here. We've been talking about the, the, the gospel, the power of God. You see, he knows, God knows. God knows that at times we find him to be stale. He's big enough to handle that. We get really nervous about that. We get terrified. Oh my gosh, I think God's stale. He's, he can handle that. And his grace is such, his power is such that he can, his love for us is such that he is determined to draw us back. And I have no doubt that that's part of what's going on here, the dynamic here going on here in the first chapter of Philippians. But God works through the gospel in astonishing ways. May that stir up within our hearts thanks, thanks for what we've already seen and experienced, but also longing. Longing for yet more of this partnership, of this assurance, and this transformation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what we read of in, in Romans 1, of the dunamis of God, the power of God. Thank you for what we read of here in Philippians 1, of the effects of that power. Thank you that... It begins on the inside and works from the inside out, and we can see its effects. It might not always be in the timing and in the way we would prefer or imagine, but you are at work, and we ask that you would stir within our hearts a cause as we think on these things, as we ponder on these things, meditate and embrace these things, grapple with them, cause for thanks as to what we've seen already and see its source and a longing for more. We need it. This world needs it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, O Lord Jesus. Change us by the power of your Spirit. Give us eyes with which to see and ears with which to hear and hearts that beat in cadence with yours. In your name we pray. Amen.